Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Jessica Davis, and I'm here with Michael Nesbitt to talk about a Canadian sanctions case out of Halifax. Hi, Mike. Hello, pleasure to be here. So let's start by giving our listeners a bit of a breakdown on the sanctions issue. Um, so first of all, I'd like you to start right at the very beginning and tell us what are sanctions and what are the sanctions that we're talking about in this case? Sure. There are a number of different types of sanctions. So you could think of them as asset freezes, arms embargo, other sorts of restrictions. But usually what we're talking about when we say sanctions is usually the Special Economic Measures Act, or maybe now the Magnitsky Act, which we can talk about. And we're talking about economic sanctions. And in Canada, we're then talking about those sanctions. And this is an interesting one on a foreign country, which is to say related to a foreign country, Iran or Russia, for example, but the sanctions actually apply to Canadians or those operating out of Canada. So that could be Canadian citizens or Canadian businesses. And so what it is, what the sanctions are then saying is you can't trade with Iran in particular ways or Russia in particular ways. So when we say Iran sanctions, we're not doing what the US sometimes does, which is to say that we can sue Iranian companies in American court for certain activities or others for dealing with those Iranians. What we're saying is it's prohibited for Canadians, Canadian companies, those operating for our territories to deal with certain industries in those other countries. So what are the conditions under which Canada can enact sanctions and what countries are currently sanctioned? That's a great question. So we have a whole list of them. And if your listeners are interested, they can, they can Google Foreign Affairs, or Global Affairs Canada now and sanctions, and it'll have a list of the various countries. And what's interesting is we'll have a host of them uh, and it depends on what legislation we're using. And so we have a host of legislation that we might use. Uh, one, we, one is under the UN Act, and really that is just actually a host of country level regulations. So sanctions on Russia or sanctions on a terrorist group that are implemented because the UN Security Council said, thou shalt do this. And we have an obligation under our UN Act to, when the Security Council does that, to comply. So we have a bunch of sanctions under that. We also have the Special Economic Measures Act. We have the Magnitsky Act. We have export and import controls. Uh, you might consider some criminal listing as a sort of related to sanctions. So we, we do have a number of options. And then underneath those, we'll have countries listed. What's, what's interesting for those who are new to this subject is you can have a country like Iran listed twice. So it could be under the UN Act and then under the Special Economic Measures Act. And ironically, you could have individuals in Iran then under what we call the Magnitsky Act, Justice for... Um, Victims of Corrupt Foreign Officials Act is, is the official title. And then each of those acts will then have different ways that you can sanction individuals, right? So, so arms embargoes, asset freezes, financial restrictions, and they will have different levers upon which we can determine that we're going to enact the sanction. So under the Special Economic Measures Act, which is really our first piece of legislation and the one that that we're, we're mostly talking about over the last 30 years when you're talking about Canadian sanctions. Uh, historically, it said when there's a breach to international peace and security, and, and I won't bore your listeners with that, but I think that's a, there's a fascinating history there in that Canada was adamant that only could Canada sanction if there was a breach of international uh, peace and security. Otherwise, it may be contrary to international law. Uh, and yet we 
while saying this on the one hand, on the other hand, sanction countries like uh, Burma or in or around the mid to late 2000s uh, for purely internal matters, right? So uh, harder to find what the breach to international peace and security was at the time. Uh, since the Magnitsky Act came into effect, we've updated our Special Economic Measures Act as well to expand the ways in which we can enact sanctions. Um, so grave breach to international peace and security has now become also gross and systemic human rights violations or certain level of, of corruption. And then we also have similar and in one case overlapping jurisdiction to enact under the Magnitsky Act. Um, so, so again, you will see not only you could see the same sort of individuals in the same countries, you could see the same justification being used. Uh, and so hard to see why you'd go under SEMA as opposed to the Magnitsky Act or vice versa. So that's one of the confusions. Um, and certainly it hasn't always even been clear from the outset when Global Affairs Canada announces sanctions, which legislation they're, they're acting under. It seems to hear you describe that, it really seems like we've got a lot of sanctions tools at our disposal in Canada and that we can really go after countries and even individuals in a lot of different ways. So this seems to me like we'd be great at sanctions, right? Like that we'd be really good at enforcing them and that people wouldn't have the ability to get around them. So what's the reality there, Mike? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I think you know the answer to this. And that is, we have a whole, as you say, we have a host of applicable legislation. And we make a big deal internationally about saying Canada takes its international responsibilities extraordinarily seriously. And the reality is that we have almost no enforcement in Canada ever. So in 30 years, since 19, almost 30 years, since 1991, under the Special Economic Measures Act, we have one prosecution. And it is, uh, frankly, an amazing case to read about. It, the only reason we caught the individuals was because we had sanctions against Iran at the time. And it said you can't import or export dual use goods for, for nuclear facilities to Iran. And the company sent goods to Iran. And so they were caught at the border, right? And so you, our only example is if the company is going to say dual use nuclear goods for Iran, clear sanctions on Iran that you can't send that, then we can capture it at the border. If they had said we're sending it to Dubai, to Dubai, a port, and then you know someone was going to go to the port and take the shipping label off and put a new one on and send it across the, the Strait of Hormuz into Iran, then then it's not clear that we would capture them. And in fact, we have no evidence so far to suggest that we would capture them. Uh, we also have a second case on maybe ongoing right now, uh, which, uh, which I believe we'll talk about, which is the Halifax businessman, Mr. Calais. It's interesting to hear you talk about using a transshipment point because everyone does that. Dubai is the center of transshipping, obviously, for a lot of logistical reasons, but like you described, it's the easiest way to get around sanctions. So it really raises the question for me about the practical application of these laws. So in a lot of aspects of financial crime in Canada, we have very good technical compliance with international norms and regulations. So we have laws on the books that suggest that we are complying with these international responsibilities. 
And it seems like sanctions are very much in that same boat. And so my question for you is this, like, whose responsibility is it to enforce these sanctions? Is it CPSA? Is it the RCMP? Is it some combination? Who's doing this? Yeah, the, sh- the short answer to you is it's a bit of a mess. And I-, I think that's probably part of the problem. So let me just add one little point here, which is that someone might be saying at home, well, maybe the lack of enforcement is because we don't have a problem in Canada. All available evidence suggests the opposite is true. Once a year, some intelligence agency from the U.S. will criticize Canada as being a hub for sanctions busting. Uh, our own CSIS has criticized in the past Canada for being home for money laundering and sanctions. The FATF, the international organization responsible for ensuring international compliance with sanctions and money laundering and terrorist financing, all those stuff, has criticized Canada for this. Uh, It seems like anecdotally once a year, the U.S. is prosecuting someone usually in upstate New York, a Canadian, for violations that are happening in Canada. Uh, The idea being they're able to capture stuff we can't. On the other hand, usually it appears, at least on the evidence that comes out, uh, that we could have easily captured the individual either. So so we literally have our allies doing the prosecution for us. So absolutely it is a problem. And so your question is, which is a very good one, the first one, which is who is responsible for enforcing this? So Global Affairs Canada has the, what is now new, Sanctions Coordination Unit, which is responsible for the legislation. So, which makes sense because they're the ones who are aware of, you know, what do we want to do internationally? Do we want to target Iran? Do we want to target Russia? They're the ones who are going to know the individuals or the groups in Iran or Russia that might might want to target, right? They have that international uh, knowledge that they need to bring to bear. On the other hand, as far as we know, it is mostly housed in foreign affairs. And as you know, they are not, used to dealing with criminal laws. They are not used to drafting criminal laws and they certainly don't do any enforcement. And so the the leakage of knowledge out of foreign affairs or into foreign affairs, global affairs, uh, we don't know, right? So your first thing is you have, is this housed and controlled by an organization that is not normally housing or controlling enforcement and compliance. Uh, They do have a bit of a history with import and export restrictions, but they are, that's an interesting history too, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's done separately. It's, it's mostly historically been done on the trade side rather than the political side of foreign affairs. And as anyone in Ottawa knows, there can be real divides even within organizations when people are working elsewhere or in different parts. Uh, and then on enforcement, you then have the RCMP could enforce it. If it's on the money side, for example, Certainly FinTrack could be feeding into this, although we have no information publicly on on what's happening there. And then the CBSA could be enforcing it. So here's where things get really interesting with what you mentioned on the transshipping side, which is the CBS can enforce the legislation, but if they don't really understand the legislation or don't know about it, or especially don't have that international knowledge about who the transshippers in Dubai are, how are they in practice going to enforce the Special Economic Measures Act? They're going to enforce it when a company says, we would like to send nuclear goods to Iran, and there's a piece of legislation that says, thou shalt not send nuclear goods to Iran. And we've seen that. That's how we capture them. If the company says, we're going to send it to Dubai, it's not evident that we have anyone in Dubai. They won't know who the transshippers are. It won't be clear whether it's going on to Iran or the final stop is in Dubai. And so what happens? The goods go, presumably, out the door. Now, maybe they're getting caught and we don't know about it, but they're not being prosecuted. 
And that brings us to the final piece of the puzzle, which is the PPSC, the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. And they ultimately will receive the information from RCMP, CBSA, and conduct the prosecution. And this is not an indictment of the PPSC, but in 30 years, they now have experience in one case and one ongoing case. So not a lot of internal experience, knowledge, and they're not going to usually be dealing with the CBSA type situations on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're, they, they like CBSA, they presumably will not have the knowledge that foreign affairs has. So we have a lot of organizations that don't often work together in a comprehensive manner that would have to work together for Canadian sanctions to function in practice. And we don't know because that's happening behind the scenes, but we can look at our record and say very few prosecutions, uh, yearly criticism that there's violations happening. It doesn't look good. It's a really interesting background for this case that we're now going to talk about. So I'll just give you a bit of background. You can rest your voice for a minute while I do this. And then we're going to have some questions for you, Mike. So What's happened here in this case is that an individual is alleged to have invested the equivalent of about $140,000 in a telecommunications company in Syria back in November of 2013 in violation of sanctions that were put in place as of May 2011. Um, so these are well, at this point in time, well-established sanctions. And these sanctions prohibited anyone in Canada from investing in Syrian businesses. So that was that Canadian component that you were talking about earlier when you were introducing the topic. Now, the Crown has alleged that, tr that the transaction took place when Mr. Kalai was in Canada. And then the interesting thing here is that emails seem to have been central in terms of the evidence. So the Crown seems to have gained access to emails that detailed these transactions, um, but it's not clear what other evidence they may or may not have had access to. Documents were seized from his home and his Yahoo account. And those contain minutes of a meeting for the company that he was alleged to have been investing in, instructions for a transfer of funds to their bank account, and a Bibelos Bank Syria transaction receipt confirming the transfer. But there's no other evidence independent of those records of the transaction taking place. And of course, now that's seven years ago. So in this case, can you tell us what has happened to date, like where it stands? Sure. So there's the legal side of this case and then the implications for sanctions, which I think are far more interesting than the legal side. So, so let me try to dispense with the legal side really quickly. Basically, we're not, we, we never even got to the trial in this case. What we were trying to figure out was whether the stuff that was found that you've just mentioned, the emails, the purported business reports, et cetera, would be admissible at trial. And the problem with admissibility is you might think, well, of course they're admissible. What, what's the problem? We found them, they're emails, right? And so the answer is, yeah, but what are they trying to prove, right? And so the question, this is uh, for criminal lawyers out there, it became a hearsay question, an admissibility question. And what they're trying to prove is that the contents of the emails were true, right? And so if you have a transaction that you can show on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and then you have emails about the transaction, and you can show the transactions associated with a number company and that the individual is, a, is associated with the number company, then you get these, these emails become admissible. Why? Because they're circumstantial evidence that speak to further 
the transaction that took place that you were going to prove independently. Here we have no independent proof. So we have an email saying something's going to happen. And so what do courts do with, for example, an email saying something's going to happen? Well, if you've got nothing else, they say, it's inadmissible. We have no idea what to make of that. People write all sorts of things in emails, which may be true or may not be true. I'm going to do this this weekend. And then you tell, oh, my parents, oh, I got busy and I didn't end up doing it, right? So you have a, an admissibility problem at criminal law with all the evidence. And the reason for that is because they couldn't verify the email. The report that they thought they had, they couldn't verify it on a stock exchange. They didn't have other information. And so it was a whole bunch of stuff that was being tendered for the truth of its contents, which is to say what it's purporting to say is true, but where we have no information beyond the documents to say whether it is actually accurate. Yeah, so let me just jump in there and clarify something because, you know, when we talk about getting an email from a bank confirming a transfer, that to me suggests that the transfer took place. But if I understand you correctly, that's still just an email. That's not an independent verification of the transaction, if that's correct. Well, it would depend on whether we have the banking records too, right? And so the, the problem here is you have an email from an individual to another individual in Syria saying, I'm going to do this, is what it appears to be, right? Or we have what looks like some sort of spreadsheet or sort of database of some stuff happening, but no independent verification that it's actually the bank's records. Right, right? because and an so email wouldn't constitute a record of a transaction. That would just be an email, a communication. That's right. And so normally it wouldn't, this wouldn't be a problem at all. You just go to Scotia Bank or TD Bank and you'd confirm that that was the case and you'd get it stamped by the bank and, and on we go, right? It, it doesn't even become an issue mostly at a trial for something like that. Um, but here we just have nothing else. And I think that's where things are really interesting because the question is, why do we have nothing else? And so if, if you don't mind, Jess, I'm going to take us through what we know and then what I think the implications are. And I'll try to be clear to distinguish between implications, so what I think to be true, and, and what we know. So what we know is something happened in Europe. So Mr. Clay was sanctioned in Europe. I don't know whether he was prosecuted there uh, or whether they took enforcement action against him, uh, whether assets were seized or what, but we know information... Uh, that, that the Europeans had this individual sanctioned and that there was something happening there. And so here's what you can infer from that. Shortly thereafter, Canada makes an arrest. So that means that either Canada is sending information to the EU, right, about this individual in Canada saying you should take action too, perhaps he's in Europe sometimes, or frankly, more likely just because of how our evidence tends to flow, intelligence tends to flow, Europe has sent information to Canada saying, this is what we're doing, this is what we have on the individual. Now, the other thing that would support the second assumption there, or inference there, is that Canada clearly had enough information. So how do we get the emails in the first place to present it, right? Well, the answer is a search warrant. In technical terms, an ITO or an information to obtain. So police went to a judge, and said, we have some information that will allow us on reasonable grounds to search this individual's home for more information. Police can't just walk into a home, right? They have to go to a judge. They have to say, here's why we're going in. They have to have reasonable grounds believe that an offense might be committed. They're gonna explain what that, they think that offense is, et cetera, et cetera. 
So they clearly have more information than what was presented at trial. Why? Because they had some information for that ITO to get in the house, and yet at trial, no information but what they found in the house was there, right? Let me just ask, that seems unusual that you wouldn't also present the information that allowed you to get the search warrant at trial. Is, is that a common tactic or is this a strange situation? No, so, so it would be what would be happen next is, is my guess is that search warrant would be challenged, uh, but we never got there. And so the reason some of that information, what would surmise here, so another inference, the reason that isn't provided is sponsor of Intrepid Podcast, Intelligence Evidence, right? So this is where you get back to the inference where I say more likely it came from Europe. Yeah, a lot more likely it came from Europe because we weren't willing to present this evidence in court, which means, which could mean a couple of things. Uh, it could mean it came from an ally and the ally said that, you know, <laughs> here, make use of it for internal purposes, but thou shalt not release this publicly. And why would they say thou shalt not release it publicly? Well. Possibly they're just being difficult and saying we don't want to share publicly our information. It's totally possible. Uh, also possible that it would reveal a source or method, right? Which for financial intelligence is there's a good chance that's what's behind it, right? So method as in we're intercepting this data in some way or information that led to this data in some way. And we do not want, it's getting us all sorts of information. And we don't want for one Canadian prosecution that'll get maybe up to five years in jail, we're not going to release that in open court, or they have a source who's telling them about this, and same thing, they don't wanna burn that source, right? So a couple inferences here, but one can imagine that this then probably came from possibly a Canadian intelligence agency, but more likely a foreign intelligence agency, and for some reason they don't wanna release the information in court, and we know that because they literally refused to do so despite having what appears to be a shaky case, uh, and we know that they had the information because they wouldn't have been in that home had they not had a search warrant in the first place. And so this all gets us back to our problem with enforcing sanctions, right? Which is that it's now based only on what we got lucky enough to find in the home. And if that's insufficient, we have a problem in prosecuting. So I understand that you're making some inferences, but how did we even get here in the first place? Because Presumably, the Crown would have known that the search warrant would have been challenged, and if it is from intelligence, that wouldn't have been presented in court. So, like, how do we even get here? So they're saying, we think we're going to find something in the home, right? So that's how they get to that point, and they get this information to obtain. So they go out and get their search warrant. They say, we think we're going to find something in the home. And if it turns out we don't, just like when you search for drugs or weapons and you get the wrong day and the drug shipments have gone out and there's nothing there, uh, so be it. But we think we're going to find something. So, so it makes sense for them to, to go in and conduct the search. They then conduct the search and they find some, some information, right? Which, which tends to, if believed and if true, tends to indicate that this individual uh, might be guilty of the offenses charged. And so this then goes to the Crown and presumably the Crown will say, well, we can't use for whatever reason, right? We, we've surmised about what it might be, but for whatever reason, we're not gonna use the information that got us the ITO in the first place. But we do have a, enough information that we think, and when the Crown's looking at it, they're gonna say, is it in the public interest to proceed? And they're gonna say, do we have reasonable prospects of conviction? And they, they must have looked at it and said, 
it's questionable, right, on on the prosecution whether this is whether reasonable prospect. But if we can get it admitted, there's some information there to implicate this individual if the court believes it to be true. So we're going to have some credibility issues. We're going to have some admissibility issues. But if we pass them, there there are four or five documents mentioned in the in the admissibility hearing decision that that suggests that there might be some information. So they, they took a chance and they're probably looking at the other side and have said, you know, is it in the public interest to proceed? And, and who knows what goes into that analysis in this case? Maybe Foreign and Global Affairs was very interested. Maybe there were pressure from allies uh, for taking action. Maybe Canada was deemed to be the best bet to prosecute someone. Uh, who, who knows there? But there, there's a lot of reasons why we could have said this is reasonable to Try it. May just be we've never we basically don't enforce this legislation. Wouldn't it be good when people are telling us we have a person in Canada who allegedly is committing offenses in large sums of money with people very connected to the Assad regime um, that we should prosecute? So where is this case at now? What what has happened? Where does it stand? And where do you think it's going to go? So where it stands now is the judge said this stuff is inadmissible. And so they didn't say it's inadmissible as in you could never use it. They said, you have to tell us why you want to use it, right? So it's got, it's got to prove something. And so what are you trying to prove? And the prosecution said, we're trying to prove that these transactions actually happened and that they were done by this individual. And the judge sort of said to in layman's terms, well, we have no independent evidence of this. Uh, we, it's all circumstantial. That's, that can be okay, but in this case, it would be all circumstantial. Um, and it's, it's essentially, it's hearsay in this case, which is to say you're alleging that a statement made out of court is true without any verification as to its reliability, right? We don't know whether it was an email saying, yeah, I'm totally going to do this because, you know, you just tell people you're going to do something, right, to make them happy or get off your back, and then you never went through with the uh, the transaction and so they're saying without more it's not admissible so it so the evidence is thrown out well if that evidence is thrown out and they're not using the evidence that they used to get the ito in the first place they have no evidence so what did the prosecution do they call no more evidence and that's the end of the trial there's there's no evidence so there's two options now that they can proceed they can, and they haven't announced what they're going to do they can appeal the decision to the Court of Appeal in Nova Scotia, or they can say this is the end of the road. And what do I think they're going to do? I, I don't know. Uh, you know, the cynical part of me says we've been so bad at prosecuting sanctions in Canada, and we've, at a practical level, we've shown so little interest domestically in enforcing them or taking them seriously that it would be shocking to see an appeal on this. Uh, that's backed up by a very practical consideration, which is even if you won the appeal and got this admitted, all it's saying is, fine, it might speak to the truth of the content. It might speak to, it might be enough to sort of speak to whether this individual conducted these transactions. Admissibility is a low bar in, in, at, at this stage. To use then the stuff which has been found by one judge to be inadmissible to beat the higher bar without any other information of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty of a criminal offense and should be put in jail. Um, very hard to imagine that taking place, right? So the other side of this is 
look, if people are having trouble finding this admissibility in the first place, admissible in the first place, really hard to imagine them appealing because even if they get it in, what are the chances? You, you know, if you lose, then it's out. And if you win, then it's still hard to imagine them them convicting beyond a reasonable doubt. So one doesn't know what they're going to do, but I guess I guess my hunch would be I'd be a little surprised to see an appeal, but one never knows. And this is such an interesting case because I live in the world of financial intelligence and financial transactions. And so to me, when I look at a case like this, I'm like, okay, well, there if this transaction occurred, there is evidence somewhere that it occurred at either the sending or the receiving bank. But it's complicated, right? Because if the receiving bank is under sanction by Canada, they're obviously not going to be the ones who are going to offer up the evidence to prosecute somebody who invested in their country. Um, that's never going to be a thing that happens. Well, I think very rarely will that be a thing that happens. But then there's also the question then of the RCMP or CBSA or whoever is doing that sort of pointy end of the investigation, their relationship with the sending bank. And if I recall correctly, I think the sending bank was in Lebanon. And so the question then becomes, why can't Canada get evidence from the Lebanese branch of this bank to prove that the transaction occurred? Do you have any thoughts on that? I have no idea. The fact that this is all talking about transactions with respect to individuals in Syria on behalf of a Syrian company through transactions, which maybe took place in Syria or near to Syria, you can imagine how that's going to make things harder. And, and these transactions are going to be on behalf of state officials who presumably have a strong interest in ensuring that anyone that might have financial control over the details wouldn't release them, uh, because we're talking about quite a bit of money here going in. Yeah, I think it's just so interesting, too, when you think about the, how quickly a financial investigation like this can become complex when you have an individual in Syria instructing or potentially instructing a transaction to take place between a bank in Lebanon to a bank in Syria to a to the benefit of a Syrian company and then you've got sanctions and international relations layered on top of it and it obviously gets very complicated very very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And then there's all the, you know, just the technical stuff, which is now relevant in Canadian court. So, so for example, one of the documents they had, they said, well, we want to tender this for its truth to say that this transaction took place because it appears to be, I forget, a spreadsheet or some, some sort of financial information. Uh, but then in order to prove that, you have to show, well, it hasn't been tampered with, right? That we didn't just change the dates and the information and the sender and all that. And it sounds like the metadata suggests that the thing was last changed before the sanctions that would apply came into effect, meaning the sanctions took place out before it was an offense, right? Uh, but then it looks like it also happened after because of the email. So it, and, and the prosecution in the case said, we can't explain this. And so whether that's a mistake somewhere along the line or, or something that couldn't be remedied, but you have this technical problem of looking at the metadata and trying to, trying to find other ways to make the proof. And it just seemed to have confused things in this case. It was, it was showing something different than what they were alleging at court, which is not a good sign. Well, thank you so much for walking us through that very interesting case, Mike. I hope, I hope this will encourage more people to study sanctions and all these fun money issues and maybe at some point encourage us to push our agencies and government to take sanctions a little more seriously.